also just sort of a heads up, we are taking a little bit of a break from Genesis for the next uh, several weeks. Um, next week, uh, Pastor Caleb is going to be preaching on Christmas Day on Mary's Magnificat. Um, and then following that, we're going to have a short uh, mini-series on the means of growth for the Christian from the Scripture. How are, we, how are we to grow? How do we grow as God's people um, for, the, for the first part of January? And then we'll jump back into Genesis later in January and pick up at chapter 17. So chapter 16, uh, the first six verses, which we studied last week, really give us the ugly affair, the situation here of the weak faith of Sarah and Abram, the patriarch and matriarch of not only the Jewish people, but also of Christian people spiritually. And we see that at times God's people's faith is weak and untrusting, and God's people even sometimes feel like they have to take things into their own hands and you want something done right, you got to do it yourself, and all those sort of things happening here. And if for no other reason we come to the conclusion, we see that um, it's really usually a bad idea. Bad things happen. And that's what we see in Genesis 16, bad things happening. But in the bad things that happen, God also brings out good from the evil. He is sovereign evil even over the foolish choices of his people. And that's the latter half of Genesis 16, as we just see the sovereignty of God, that he does good things with bad people. That's an amazing reality that I am very thankful myself for. So in the first part, we saw the weakness of faith. Here in the second half, we see that Hagar, this mistress, or this maid, the servant of the mistress Sarah, leaving Sarah and Abram, pregnant as through this surrogacy uh, with Abram's child. Um, and she is mistreated enough by Sarah that she believes that her chances are better in the wilderness than with the wealth of Abram and Sarah. And so she leaves. She runs away. And what we find is, in the beginning of the text, the setting is that even though she is not one of the covenant children of God, she's not a part of the patriarchal lineage. She's an Egyptian servant, probably given to Sarah um, as a means of winning over Sarah's affection by Pharaoh years before. And now she is desperate, desolate, oppressed, having been dealt harshly with, and sitting by a spring, it says in our text, on the way to Shur. Shur is, means wall in Hebrew, and this likely is a reference to the northern fortifications of Egypt, either geographical fortifications, big, huge cliffs that sort of created the border, or there were also military fortifications on the northern edge of Egypt's country, and this was to prevent invaders. And so here she is on the border of Egypt, and she is next to a spring of water, and she's alone. And that's where the story picks up. Abram and Sarah really are found nowhere in this account. Now we zero in on Hagar and God. And that's what we find in our text. The Hebrew, that we, I, you know that if you've been here long enough, you know that I get sort of jazzed up about Hebrew, uh, well, any language, uh, Hebrew and Greek, but 
um, the Hebrew sort of structure and how it screams out, it speaks to us, as well as the body language of the text. Well, this text has a lot of Hebrew poetic structure in it. And I'm not going to go into great detail on it, but I think it is helpful to understand the point of the text. First of all, we have our, our well-known Hebrew uh, structure called a chiasm, and this whole text is a chiasm. Well, the 7 through 14, 15 and 16 at the end just sort of give the summation of everything. And you see, we, we first we'll meet Hagar at the well near, or spring near Shur. And then we, that pairs very well with verse 14, where we have Hagar, presumably, naming this well, uh, so the naming of the well. And then you have verse 8, which you have the angel of the Lord approaching Hagar, asking her a question. Where are you from? Going from and where are you going? And then Hagar's response, I'm fleeing for my, my mistress, Sarah. You see, this paired well with the verses 11 through 13, where we have the angel of the Lord's prophecy concerning her son Ishmael. The question in the prophecy and then Hagar's response in verse 13. You have the angel's question, angel Lord's question, and Hagar's response. You have the angel's prophecy and Hagar's response. And then in the middle, you have the angel of the Lord in verse 9, issuing a command, orders for Hagar, go back, and then a blessing, a promise of blessing. I will multiply your seed. And so that kind of fits the main part of it, is the... Uh, the main punch of the text is the command and blessing to Hagar in verses 9 and 10. And so that's the structure, the body language of the text forces us to look toward this command to return and this promise of blessing as the main aspect of the text. Now before we get into the text and kind of reading through some of this, there's some very difficult and interesting Hebrew in the text. And if you have a variety of translations, you might even notice a lot of different translational ways of rendering different parts of this text. It says the Hebrew is kind of hard. It's kind of vague in places, and translators do the best they can to like, try to make sense of it sometimes. So before we even get to that, there is just a couple of underpinnings that I think are important that this text brings up that we have to kind of think through very briefly. Because these are big questions and big, with, with really kind of... Um, complex answers, just can introduce them. You do some work on your own to work through this. But the first quest, first sort of thing comes up is a lot of people use this text as an occasion to say, um, well, yeah, these two um, brothers, half-brothers, Ishmael and Isaac, um, they, 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 this whole mess created this Middle Eastern conflict today between the Arabs and the Israelites. And that's based on the assumption that the Arab people are descendants of Ishmael. Something that Muhammad claimed to be a direct descendant from Ishmael, but actually something that has no biological, genetic, historical, or biblical evidence to it. In fact, it is more likely that the Ishmaelites, like all the other people groups in that day, were swallowed up by other empires and other nations as they came along. That's exactly what happened. That same thing happens to the Hittites and the Ammonites and the Perizzites and I mean, all the ites there, and the Israelites are in that group. Now, there's this, the, the, the first instance we have of this historically, of this concept that the Arabian people are descendants from Ishmael, is Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, who mentioned that very briefly. No other historical doc- documents even mentioned that concept. And that's about, oh, almost 2,000 years from this event that Josephus says that. 
the next event, next kind of record of that is Muhammad 700 years after, after Josephus making that claim, which there was no basis for it. He simply just made that claim. I think today, most um, Muslim people would claim to be descendants of Ishmael, but it's not a, ge- a genetic or biological expression. It's more of a religious and cultural expression. Um, and so, my point is, we shouldn't twist and use this scripture as for a geopolitical answer or issue regarding Middle Eastern conflict. It's just not there or not a part of it. And it's kind of eisegesis. It's taking something out that's not in there. Okay, put that aside. The more important theological underpinning is four times in this text we see this phrase, the angel of the Lord. Ma'at Yahweh. It's found 56 times in the Old Testament, six times in Genesis, four of those six times in this text. First instance of the angel of the Lord, record of that phrase in Hebrew. The next time it's used in Genesis 22 is a reference to when Abram is um, presumably or, or soon to be offering his son Isaac, but then God rescues him from that. It's the only other couple of times this angel of the Lord is used in Genesis. A corresponding angel of God, Malach Elohim, is used at other times in Genesis for this angel of the Lord. And there have been a lot of things written about the identity of the angel of the Lord. And as usual, how do we know who the angel of the Lord is? We have to always come back to the context and understand it from there. Because this phrase, Ma'at Yahweh, is used in the scripture as a reference to an angelic spiritual being like Gabriel or Michael, an angel. It's used in scripture as a reference to prophets, because the word angel also means messenger. The uh, for example, Haggai is called the Ma, um, Malaak uh, Yahweh, the angel or the messenger of the Lord. And, according to context, it's used as a reference to God himself. And the first thing that people ask is, well, how could God be the angel of the Lord? How could he be the messenger of God if he's God? God can be his own messenger. <laughs> um, we see that specifically in the New Testament in the incarnation of Christ, right? He's called the divine logos, the word of God, or the message, or the messenger of God. That's logos means. So yes, God could be his own messenger. So this isn't some sort of strange theological thing to think that the angel of the Lord is God himself, or Yahweh himself. He is the divine logos. Thus, we believe, or I believe, and this is where you'd have to work on your own because I don't have time that often, most often, and in this text I'm going to show you in a moment, this is a reference to the Son of God, to the second person of the Trinity, to who would be when he becomes incarnate, Jesus the Christ. Not right to call him the Christ here, because Christ is a title of his mission, and here it's not Christological. It's not to be the Messiah, it's to be the messenger, which is why angel messenger is used. It's revelatory rather than redemptive. Um, so I don't think Christophany is technically the best way to say it, as some people would say. Um, but this, I believe, is very clearly the second person of the Trinity. Interestingly, when Jesus Christ does become, the second person comes and incarnate, becomes born and manger and all that sort of stuff, we see no references ever again outside of the Old Testament to the angel of the Lord. You see, that this phrase is not referenced ever in the New Testament, indicating 
the second person of the Trinity now came in human flesh. Now he's present. Anyway, that's who this is. This is Lord. Now, how do I know this in the context? Well, first of all, look at verse 13 in Hagar. After she first claims this angel of the Lord meets her, she first just seems to assume like he's any other person. He asks her a question. There's no falling down on her face. There's no trembling. There's no, oh, no, I've seen God. She's just like, I'm running from my mistress. But at the end of the conversation, she says, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Who spoke to, the Lord spoke to her. You are the God who sees. And then he says, and it's not a question in the Hebrew, that's how they render it in English in order to give the idea, it's an exclamation, it's an astonishment. Another way of saying, how have I seen him who sees me and lives? How in the world did I make it through this? That's the response that people always have after they know they've encountered the Lord. So Hagar comes to believe I've seen God. I've seen the Lord. Furthermore, Moses, the author, tells us in verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke there. Moses says, the Lord spoke to her there. Then in verse 10, Moses, our scribe, the author, says, then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so they shall not be counted for multitudes. That's what God says to Abram and Sarah and Jacob and Isaac. And here it's in the first person singular. I will do this. Now, if this is a Gabriel or a Michael, they're not going to say, I'm going to multiply your seed. They're going to say, the Lord will multiply your seed. But here, the angel of the Lord says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you. That would be the strongest indication that Moses and Hagar both recognize this is God's speaking to Hagar, personally. So, the Son of God himself appears to Hagar, the Egyptian in the wilderness. That's amazing. That's amazing. So what happens when he appears? First of all, notice in 7 through 9 who he's appearing to. Hagar. She is, from a human perspective, a nobody. Right? Is that possibly a gift, a dowry gift from Pharaoh? A rented womb for a barren woman. Yet there is a sweetness, is there not, when the text says that the angel of the Lord, the Lord found her. He found her at this well. You know when you look through Scripture, whenever God encounters people, God is always the one seeking after and finding them. And they're always the ones being found by Him. Might I just say that I don't think anything has changed? That God is the one who seeks after the weak, the weary, the oppressed, and the sinful? That God is the one who finds us in our desperate place. I know it's common for people today to speak about trying to find God or to reach God or to look after God. And if one does that, it's honestly only because God has found them first. God has sought after them first. The sweetness there, the Lord found her. 
Notice also the gentle approach. He comes with inquiry, not accusation. What are you doing? You run away? No. Where are you going? Where are you from? Doesn't that sound a little bit like when God comes in the garden to sinful Adam? Adam, where are you? Or when he comes to Cain? He's like, Cain, where's your brother? Isn't it interesting how we see that Jesus, also in the New Testament, is always asking questions? God comes asking questions. Now, this obviously, if he is God, cannot be he comes asking questions because he's ignorant. So why does God come, seem to most of the time, come? by the way, he comes to the, to the weak and the needy asking questions. He does sometimes come with accusation and strength. Usually, it's a, you contrast this to how he approaches Jacob later on in Genesis, who's rebelling and, and, and proud and running from him. He comes to him and wrestles with him. Um, but here he comes questioning, asking her. He's gentle in his approach. Now, she responds, I'm running away. I, I, this isn't the point of the text, but I, I think the reason why, one of the reasons why Hagar responds so openly and without, like, unlike Adam, who tried to cover, and Cain, who tried to manipulate, is that I think Hagar, I think rightfully so, doesn't believe she's done anything wrong. There's no reason to hide what she's done. And I don't think she has either. According to 1 Corinthians 7, as Paul the Apostle says, if you're, if you're a slave and you can gain your freedom, get it. She's seeking to gain her freedom from this oppression. Nowhere in the text does, does the Lord ever accuse her of doing wrong in the whole situation. But he asks her a question. And he does also call her in, her, in, the, in the asking of the question to return to her mistress. Now, that seems a little bit unfair. Go back under the oppression? Why would he do that? Why would he call her, command her, to return to her mistress, Sarah? And even in the text is very clear. He says, return to your mistress, and then he says, and submit yourself under her hand. That her hand there is the oppression. Right? Go be oppressed. Why would he do that? Well, the context tells us, because in 10 and on down through 11 and 12, but particularly in 10, tells him the reason why he wants her to submit under the oppression of Sarah. Not because Sarah's right, and not because Hagar's wrong, but because of God's sovereign, merciful purposes and plans. And then he says in verse 10, then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, that they shall not be counted for multitude. Now, this is jumping ahead a little bit. We have to kind of hard for them to take it verse by verse and just think the big picture here. The next thing he's going to do is he's going to bless the son in her womb. Or not bless, he's going to give a prophecy about the son in her womb. Um, but I do want you to notice, because I, I missed this the first time I read this, he's not promising great descendants for Ishmael. Did you catch that? What, who's the promise to? It's to Hagar. Interestingly, it's not on Ishmael that the promise rests. He gives a prophecy regarding Ishmael, but there is no, not, nowhere in the Scripture that God gives this patriarchal promise to Ishmael or to any other sons of Abram but Isaac. And yet he gives it, and it's very similar. Doesn't this sound very similar to the patriarchal blessing that he gave Abram? In fact, it's almost the exact same words. I will 
multiply your offspring exceedingly, so they shall not be counted for their multitude. Sounds like the very same thing he said to Abram the previous chapter. And he gives it to the Egyptian slave girl, pregnant and sitting by a spring, hoping to survive. Why would he call her under the oppression of Sarah? Because it is through that oppression, through the means of being there in Abram's tent, under his protection and provision, that God will bring about his purpose of blessing to Hagar. That's why. Read on further, through the son, Ishmael, that will now be preserved through Abram. By the way, that's why when you look at verse 15 and 16, it's so repetitive. Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Do you get the idea there what he's saying? Like, go back because I'm going to bless you and bless your son and give your son provision and protection through my patriarch, Abram. He's going to give you, he's going to, he's going to make you and Ishmael okay. But you've got to go back under the oppression for my purposes. So it's not just submit to the oppression of Sarah because oppression is good. It's submit to the oppression of Sarah because I am working good in the midst of that oppression. We will come to this later, but for those who are keen to kind of picture the whole Bible, might hear scenes of Romans chapter 8. Right? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Might also sound a little bit like Job, right? The means by which God blesses Job is through the suffering of Job. Or it might sound a little bit like Joseph when he said, God said to his brothers, God sent me before you into Egypt. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's what's happening here. So we have this blessing given to Hagar. Remarkable that a sinful error will bring about similar divine blessing as given to the exalted father Abram. It's remarkable. God indeed regards and lifts up the lowly according to the good pleasure of his will. From God's perspective, there is no distinction between Abram and Hagar. His care for Hagar equals his care for Abram. And then when you start realizing the contrast here, how different Abram and Hagar are, their class ranges, two genders, male and female, one a slave, one a prince, one a future Jew, one a Gentile. And you begin to see that it's true what the New Testament says, that God is no respecter of persons. That he cares for Hagar and blesses her in the same way he cares for Abram and blesses him. Now that's fantastic, at least to me. Because I'm no Abram. This is encouraging. 
Well, he's not done. He now moves from verse 11 through 12 to the prophecy regarding Hagar's soon-to-be-born son, Ishmael. This is the part that gets a little bit difficult in Hebrew. And this is also the part that has all sorts of expressions of the Hebrew poetry. In fact, the verse 11 has one very common and normal way of arranging Hebrew in poetic form, and verse 12 has another very common way of arranging Hebrew in poetic form. So this would be a, if somebody was teaching a class on interpretation, it would be a great text to like look at the various ways Hebrews would write in one small text. So very briefly, for example, in verse 11 with the prophecy, well, actually this is the the blessing regarding Hagar, and then um, verse uh, and Ishmael, and then 12 is directly about Ishmael. But you notice he says, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. The Lord has heard your affliction. So this is the Hebrew parallelism. Behold, you are with child, you shall bear a son. There's the parallelism there. And then again, you shall call his name Ishmael, and this is arranged differently to help us see the parallelism. The Lord's affliction has heard. How's that a parallelism? Well, Ishmael means God hears. And so it's a play on words. So this verse, sort of very common way of Hebrew poetry, is a play on words. They do this all the time. Unfortunately, we rarely get the play on words in the English. Um, but Hopefully you could see it here. The play on words with child and son, and then the play on words with Ishmael and herd. Ishmael, Shama, um, Yishama, El. El is God. Shama, hear God. God hears. That's the first thing he says to Hagar. Now, first of all, just I think it's probably very obvious, good news, she's going to survive. Right? <laughs> And the baby's going to survive. We may take that for granted a little bit, but I suppose if you're sitting by a spring in the wilderness and you're pregnant, and you're in an ancient world where pregnancies didn't always last, and you're broke and you're poor and you have nothing and nobody, just hearing you're going to live is probably pretty good news. And then hearing that your baby's going to live too is pretty good. Live long enough to get named is pretty good news as well. So this is good news to Hagar. But it is even better news because that last little phrase, you shall call his name Ishmael, the Lord your affliction has heard. You know what I think is so fascinating about that? Is often, like when the children of Israel, this is sort of a reverse of what's going to happen with the children of Israel, another play on words, the descendants of, of Abram, they'll actually be under the affliction of the Egyptians, and God will say he heard the affliction of his people. Kind of like a little reverse of the situation. But you know what's interesting is that when it says the Lord has heard, heard, often there is something accompanying that of because the people were crying out. We have nothing in the text to indicate Hagar's crying out. It doesn't say the Lord heard your prayer, the Lord heard your voice, the Lord heard what you asked of him. It says he heard your affliction. He heard your abuse when you weren't even saying anything about it. God heard the affliction. Of Hagar. So important is this that he commands Hagar to name her son God hears. As a reminder, 
mothers would understand this better than anyone else. But every time Hagar, under Sarah's hand, would experience another harsh scolding, getting the worst jobs of the servants and all those things that may happen to her, she would look over there and go, Ishmael, God hears. God hears. God hears. This reminder would be continual before her because the name of her son is that God hears a fortune. Following this parallelism, this play on words, we have another chiasm, and this is regarding the prophecy of Ishmael. Now, quickly, there's a lot of stuff here. I've got to move through it. Um, this is not a moral statement regarding Ishmael, good or bad. This is not a blessing or a cursing. This is a prophecy. This is just telling her what's going to happen. To some, this sounds bad. To others, this sounds pretty good. And I'll explain what I, what, what I mean in just a moment. So here's the way the parallel goes. It says, he should be a wild donkey man. Now that, in the New King James, it doesn't have the word donkey. That's unfortunate, but it's there. Yeah, the word is donkey. He should be a wild donkey man. His hand, this is look, his hand against every man. Every man's hand against him. He shall dwell opposite his brother's. Now, that last phrase is the one that has the most Hebrew difficulty. But let's talk about, for he to be a wild donkey man. Now, that seems like, we say, this sounds good or bad. It sounds pretty bad, right? Your son's going to be a donkey man. But that's just our misunderstanding. So, the wild donkeys in the Judean wilderness were, first of all, not like our donkeys here in the West, or even like our mules. They were, they were like horses. In fact, they were the, when they were tamed and broken, they were the uh, preferred beast for kings to ride on. So this isn't an insult. Do you think, think perhaps when you see wild donkey, ma'am, think perhaps uh, untamed and free. Running where he wants hair, you know, the mane flowing and just running through the wilderness, living a life of freedom. His hand, though, will be against every man. That often comes with the freedom-loving um, you can, and I hope I don't get too uh, step on toes here or anything. I know we're in the West, and anyways, you, you know, you can have my guns, and you can fight them from my cold, dead hands kind of temperament. That's Ishmael's kind of temperament here. The wild man is like that. Come at me. And because his hand is against every man, you know what that usually means, right? Every man's hand is against him. In other words, it's going to be like the uh, a life of conflict. Like I said, we would think, oh, that sounds bad. And then the last phrase is the hardest one. It says, he shall dwell opposite his brothers. You can go through every translation will have a different rendering of this. Because it's, it's sort of a difficult situation in translation. The word over or against is the same word in Hebrew. It's the same word as with and according to. So, we don't have very many of them in English, but it's, it's, there's a, in Hebrew and Greek, there's often a word, and it's this, this word kata in Greek, and this word in, in the Hebrew over, where, depending on the context, it can either be a good thing or a bad thing. It's either for or against, and it's the same word. So, when you're trying to translate, like, oh, which one is it? And you have to look at the context to determine that. And that's coupled with another word in the present, which is why the most literal translation is 
he will dwell over in the presence of his brothers. So that seems contradictory, over or against in the presence of his brothers. So the weirdest translation, by the way, of this is the New American Standard, which actually says he shall dwell east of his brothers. And the word east isn't anywhere in it. Um, I have no idea why they translate that way. Um, but I think the update actually doesn't. <laughs> uh, the, the ESV says he will be hostile. He'll be hostile be against his brothers. Uh, the, King James, the New King James just goes in the most literal, just in the presence of, to try to like, just let you figure it out. Um, the NEP, which I think is, is often very good translation, um, it says this opposite, his brothers. And I think that's what's referring to. Because in the chiasm, it would pair with the wild donkey man, not with the hand against every man, contextually. So in other words, like, he's wild and free, opposite or away from the brotherhood. Not, that's not referring particularly to Isaac, so that's one of them, but he'll have many brothers. And this is particularly a prophecy about Ishmael, not necessarily about his descendants. And the idea there, it makes sense to me. I like the way one translator put it. He's going to live on the fringe of society. He's going to live opposite. You know, they settle here, it's getting too crowded. I'm going to go here. Sounds an awful lot like a kid from Wyoming to me. So that's just maybe somebody who knows about Wyoming. But the idea there is that so when we read this, we automatically think, oh, this sounds very negative. But somebody who does come from Wyoming, I, I actually read this person like, oh, that sounds great. Like, no one to tell me what to do. I don't have responsibilities. I get to run free. I want to get in my truck and go here. I go there. I want to go there. I can do whatever I want. And it starts to get crowded because too many people are moving in here. I'm just going to go move out there and build a house and settle out there. Of course, that brings hostility because no one likes the individual that's always anti-establishment and always against civilization. Nobody likes that. And, and that's really the description here. I like the way Gordon Wenham put it because I think he summed it up very well when he said, the freedom his mother sought will be his one day. And that's the idea here. He's going to be that guy. I'm trying to think of a modern equivalent, and I thought, what better than he's going to be a Viking? He's going to be a pirate. You know? And to a pirate, you would say, a pirate, that's bad. To a pirate, they would say, that's good. Right? Pirate's life for me. That's the concept here. So that's why I say this isn't so much a blessing or a cursing, just a prophecy. Hagar must not be too bothered by it. Because he hears it and goes back to sit under Sarah's hand looking for this day. This is why Hagar, I believe, will hear the word of the Lord and submit to the sinner Sarah because it will mean freedom for her son. And every mother here gets that. Right? It, it makes sense. You mean, I have to endure some hardship so that my son will be free? I can do that. And that's why she submits, I believe, because of this prophecy regarding her son. By the way, as I said, verse 15 and 16 is the fulfillment of that. So she went back, and he was under Abram's protection, and he was Abram's son. Actually, if we were to trace more, and we will get to more of it, you know, he does appear a few more times in the Genesis account. We will find that he does actually happen. The very last phrase in the Bible about Ishmael is found in, in the end of Genesis, actually Genesis 20, 
5, I believe. And it actually says, and he dwelt opposite of his brothers. <laughs> and this happens. He will reunite once again with Isaac at one point as an adult, and they'll bury their father together. But he seems to live this pirate life. This life of freedom without responsibility. But what's the big idea? What's the main takeaway in this whole text? Is it really about Ishmael's freedom? Is it about Hagar's oppression? It actually isn't. It's Hagar's response gives to us the primary point of the whole text. Verse 13, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. El Rohi, the God who sees me. God takes notice of me. God cares for me. That's what that means. I need to give a very brief parenthesis because we have that phrase that says, then she called the name of the Lord. How does one name God? How does one do that? Now, you know, the word God, Elohim, in the Hebrew, is not really a name. Uh, it's a description. The God. Later we'll find out, and we've already read it, Yahweh uh, is the covenant name, the name that God speaks of when he speaks of his name, his identity, his primary identity, how he reveals himself to Moses, the I am that I am, Yahweh. But throughout the Old Testament, we actually see this happen quite often, where individuals will name the Lord. Obviously, this is not the same thing as a child giving their infant a name, the thing they're going to be called by for the rest of their life. Because you would have to be the parent to do that, and these are people naming God. But throughout the Old Testament especially, we find what we, what we call the compound names of God. Now, these are not God's um, designations, like I said, as far as like what you would call him um, as a parent would call a child. That's, Yahweh is that name. But these compound designations take an attribute or a characteristic of the, that, that one has experienced or one hopes for and attaches that to either El in Elohim, or Yah or Yahweh, uh, the name of God. So the first instance we have of this in Genesis, this compound name of God, is found a few chapters back when Melchizedek identifies Abram as, Melchizedek the priest identifies Abram as blessed of Abram of God Most High. And that compound name or, or uh, description is El Elyon, the God on high, the God most high. It will happen again in chapter 17 when God himself names and he says, I am, to Abram, he says, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty is the typical way that's translated. It happens with, for example, in Genesis 22 when Abram goes to offer Isaac and then that whole business is taken care of and he's elated and he says, this is wonderful. Uh, Yitha, Yura. 
Jehovah Jireh, as we will say it, the Lord provides. And you see these throughout the Old Testament. They're in the Pentateuch, they're in the Prophets, they're in the Psalms, they're, they're everywhere. And I would encourage you to take note of these compound names. You even have a notebook where you are writing them down in the text where they are found. And you are compiling a journal of God. These will help you in days of desperation and darkness. It also is an assist in even your daily days when it's not dark. When you go back and you see the character of God. We say it often in our church. And we just give a very quick pastoral word, a shepherdly word for this. Our goal in our church is to know God, love God, serve God. But most people mess this all up. And they put serve God first. I just got to serve God. I just got to serve God. But you know, it's very hard to serve a God you don't love. It becomes performative and legalistic. So love God and you will serve God. But you know it's very difficult to love a God you do not know. But when you know this God of the Bible, I am convinced it becomes impossible not to love Him. And when you love Him, you can't help but say, Lord, send me. What do you want me to do? So this journal of God is there to help you know Him, to understand Him. And one of the chief ways you do this for the Old Testament, you can do this, is take note of these names and what they mean. And know Him a little bit more. And understand Him a little greater. Okay, that aside. Put this one on your list then. El Rohi. The God who sees me. Now understand that this word see, Rohi, Raha, doesn't mean in the Hebrew context um, merely that God is at a distance observing what's happening. It doesn't mean that God is deistically watching to see what's going to take place down with these mortals. Not that he sees that way, but that he comes near and he hears me. I'm seen by him. My affliction, my struggle, my weakness is seen, cared for, understood good by the God of eternity. God has compassion on me. That's what Hagar said. He's had compassion on me. He's merciful to me. He thinks about me. He knows me. Remember this stranger who she thought was just somebody coming to the well to get some water? Remember how he approached Hagar? The very first word he said? Hagar how does this guy know her? You see, God has seen her. He knows her by name. Before, and heard the affliction before she ever was at this well. Might I say, if that is true of this Egyptian slave woman, then don't you think it's true of you? Now, sometimes that's the genius of this text. 
sometimes we can read about Abram and we can read about, about Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel and they were so brave and they were wonderful. And we read about, about Jesus and we can think, yes, but I'm not them. Well, good news. God just doesn't see those people. He sees Hagar as his well in the wilderness. There's one more text that has Hagar in it, and it's her being cast out. There's a New Testament in Delusion, but that's not what I'm speaking of. We don't know what happens to Hagar. We know a little bit about Ishmael. She, she disappears in history. But disappearing in history does not mean she disappears from the heart and mind of God. He sees her. God bends toward Hagar in compassion. God comes near her with mercy. I want to just briefly mention before we are done the moral and theological and Christological implications, I think, of this that hit me. The moral implication is, first of all, not a big part of the story. We talked about these things. But but there is a, a brief illusion here that Hagar believes, she has faith, and she responds with obedience. She does respond with obedience. She believes. And perhaps there's a bit of a contrast between her and her mistress, right? The the Gentile woman believes while the proto-Jew doesn't or is weak in faith. And and if if that's the case, then say, well, that's kind of a little bit of a stretch, and I, I agree it's not the main point. But just then go to the New Testament and read this, how Jesus constantly talks about this. How often said to the Gentiles who sought him, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. <laughs> there, is, there is hope for the Gentile. And that perhaps though the gospel breaks down the wall of separation and the gospel opens up Jew and Gentile and the gospel indeed destroys the ethnic hostility and the prejudices there, understand that, oh, the gospel is the key to undoing that, that it always has been the heart and mind of God. Even before Christ comes, he's breaking down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And he says constantly in the Psalms, let all the people praise him. Let all the people. The theological impact of this text, though, is pretty big. It's God's compassion. And might I first note for you that God's compassion is timely. That mercy extends to all, yes, but is particularly directed to the weak, the distraught, the oppressed, the abused. Even though she, her descendants at least, will be, and her people are future enemies of God's people, His mercy extends to her in her weak, distraught, oppressed, and abused state. In other words, God's compassion is not pragmatic. God isn't so mercy on people because one day they're going to do something for Him. No, He shows mercy on this woman because it is His nature to show mercy. Because He loves to show compassion. Secondly, notice that God's compassion is sincere. Ever encountered someone who asked you what's wrong, and the only reason you come to find out they ask you what's wrong so they can tell you what's wrong in their life. And you get that, I don't think it's very sincere. He's just trying to, you want to tell your story, okay. It's not our God. It's not Elohim. Hagar, where are you going? 
where'd you come from? He heard her. There's no strings attached with God's mercy. He tenderly converses with Hagar and cares about her distressing situation. Now, quick, a word of warning. Our world has redefined compassion as blanket affirmation. That is not at all what God does here, even in compassionate faith. Compassion is not affirmation. It's actually, I believe, affirmation of those who are, who are sinning in such a way that the judgment of God will fall upon them. It is actually affirming that sort of sin is actually cowardly selfishness. Compassion is not agreeing with the sins and beliefs that are condemning. It's not concerning people liking us. God's compassion is sincere, notably because he directs Hagar in what to do. That brings up another aspect, though. God's compassion is personal. El-Rohi, that little he on the end of it, is the Hebrew ending of the, the personal, me. That's why she says, God sees me. Rohi. She understood that. It's not just that God sees in a general sense, but it's personal. He saw Hagar. He sees you. Remember the account of Jesus and the woman who had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years? And she comes up and there's a crowd of people all around and she just reaches out and just touches the fringe of his garment and he stops and he goes, who touched me? And Peter's like, who touched you, Lord? Everybody's touching you. He's like, no, who touched me? And she says, it is I. And he says to her, faith made you whole. Just compassion to this one woman out of the crowd. Personal. God's compassion is active. He doesn't simply offer her well wishes. Which is often all we can do for others. I mean, often, we, we, you've been there, right? You're like, I can't do anything. But that's okay. Because God can. God does. He asked him. He says, I'm going to give you a great multitude. Here's what's going to happen with your son. Go back into the under Sarah because Abram's going to take care of it all. He has a plan for her. Not necessarily or usually pleasant. God's action. The action of God and his compassion toward us is not necessarily pain-free solutions. But it is always good because he is good. And I didn't say it feels good. I say it brings about our good and God's glory. God's compassion is divinely wise. He instructs her, he commands her, he blesses her, he prophesies. I'm trying to go back to oppression, but for Ishmael's sake. Goes back to what I just said. It may not feel best, but divine wisdom says God's way is always best. God does promise what is good and glorifying. He does bring that about in his compassion. It's okay to ask him why. It's okay to question. It's okay to cry out like the psalmist did. But just know at the end of the day that to take God at his word is to believe that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk upright. And so if he's given it to us, it's good. It's a good thing. We can see also the Christology here in this is not explicit in the text. But I find it very difficult to read any text of Scripture and to not be drawn toward Christ in some way. And what drew me in this text toward Christ was the birth annunciation. Very similar, by the way, to others 
when he announces the birth. Did you, did you catch it, though? Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. Sounds an awful lot like Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And I don't think that perhaps is the particular intent of Moses when he writes this, but I think this is the Spirit's intent in all of the Scripture, that in one way or another, when we read it, we're not reading things into it, but we are drawn toward Christ. And the Annunciation draws me toward Christ. I began to think through that a little bit, and isn't it interesting that Ishmael means God sees me? It's a great thing. But isn't it even more powerful that Emmanuel means God's with me? God's with us? Present? Ishmael will live a life wild and free, but Emmanuel will live a life submitted wholly to the Father. Ishmael will experience hostility and exchange that hostility for hostility. The Son of Man. Emmanuel, he will also experience hostility, contradiction of sinners. And yet, it's amazing when we look at Christ, how he constantly returns that with mercy. He, when he was reviled, did not revile again. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to the one who judges righteously. He was, Israel would dwell opposite his people, but isn't it often said about the Christ that he came unto his own? He lived among his people? that he would dwell with his people. And if Ishmael is going to live on the fringe of civilization, contrast this with Emmanuel, who when Jesus is prophesied to be born to Mary, says this, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Jesus, though, will build the greatest eternal civilization to ever be built. So I'm thankful for Ishmael. I'm thankful for the testimony of God's compassion. It teaches me so much. And I'm thankful that the testimony of Ishmael, God brings hope in a very dark and sinful situation because he is full of mercy and his But I am far more thankful for Ishmael.